I almost wish that I had had horrific hangovers because presumably you would have done it less to yourself. I didn't feel impeded by it, although you now know, like as a sober person, you think you're getting away with it, but you're not. You think that nobody can see you've had, you know, six whiskeys or whatever, but you can, right? It's, it's kind of like you feel like invincible and you feel really funny and you feel really cool, but actually you're just some pisshead in a bar. And that is a shame that I've realized that so much later in my life. But again, it's all part of the journey, I suppose. Unfortunately, men's mental health issues are frequently ignored and men tend to neglect their mental health for years. So what is being done to help men's mental health and why is it still so stigmatized? These are the sorts of questions we should be asking ourselves all the time, but particularly this month, as Men's Mental Health Month sees mental health charities prioritize the conversation around men's mental health and help raise awareness of the struggles men can face. This month, I want to allow space for men to talk about their mental health and to normalize it by having them speak openly about their own challenges. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. On today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to Spencer Matthews, a successful entrepreneur, former Made in Chelsea cast member turned broadcaster, and an incredible father of three children. Spencer is well known for his non-alcoholic drinks brand, CleanCo, which was created as a result of his unhealthy relationship with alcohol during his 20s, which he saw as an obstacle in his life that had to be removed. Spencer talks openly about how much his life has changed since he made this decision, as it put everything into perspective and allowed him to reassess his priorities. He has since gone on to conquer not only the drinks industry, but a number of extreme challenges, including the Marathon de Sable, and most recently he ventured to base camp of Mount Everest, where he set out to find his middle brother, Michael, who tragically disappeared while descending the mountain in 1999. I'm honoured to speak to Spencer today about how he navigated the emotions that surfaced as a result of this recovery operation, and how his attitude towards life has drastically changed in the last 10 years. So will you tell me what you were like as a child? I was very energetic always. My dad used to call me a rock ape. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that means. He's from Sheffield, quite a hard northerner. We had a really interesting childhood, actually. I, I was kind of significantly younger than my siblings. My brothers were 12 and 13 years older than me. And then I had a much older half-sister than, than them as well. So I, I kind of uh, it almost felt like I was an only child kind of growing up because I didn't have any siblings of a, of a similar age. And despite growing up in great comfort and love, I've said kind of before that expressing any kind of weakness was seen to be wrong almost, as I think you'll find in lots of like Northern families, I suppose. It was, it was a very keep your head down and crack on and get on with it. And if you hurt yourself, crying is not going to help you. And there was pretty much no tolerance of weakness. In fact, weakness would be met with punishment sometimes. And <laughs> so, so, so I think, I think it's, yeah, it's just important to say that, that I, uh, I love, well, I love, I love my dad uh, and I'm not, you know, for, for a single second claiming that I had a difficult childhood, 
but there was that which kind of I've ex- been exploring uh, recently. I've never once cared about my mental health ever, and I've never uh, in historically thought that I had any issues, and still don't believe that I'm you know that that I have you know issues per se. But it would explain a lot about a few things. I generally kind of lack empathy. I'm not a very sympathetic person. You know, I've often been very selfish in in my own life. And I just, I feel that that way of being brought up makes me look at problems differently. You know, I see any problem, I feel like you can just fix it and move through it, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like a, a brief process. You know, for me, if something doesn't, isn't going to bother me in a week's time, then I won't let it bother me now. And it's kind of, I don't know, I feel that that's from my dad. It's interesting because you do have a very optimistic outlook on life. And for a lot of kids who have been brought up in that environment, it would probably do the opposite. I've always been optimistic and I've always enjoyed optimism, even when, you know, you feel that optimism probably isn't the best route. I've always wanted to feel optimistic. I don't think that's particularly helpful in business, just in passing. And that's a lesson that... I've kind of learned like only seeing the good in stuff is, is is unhelpful, but I kind of like to only see the good in people and it's bitten me a few times. But that I, I differ to my brother as an example with that. So he is, I hate using the word pessimistic because it makes you sound like a kind of really negative person and he's not a negative person, but he would only, he would see the negative in everything. Yeah. Whereas I try to only see the positive in, in everything. And I think perhaps being more balanced would be the preferred outcome. But I can have one meeting with someone and just kind of, you know, fall in love with the idea of what we're going to do. Uh, and then I'll really struggle to kind of think about anything else. Interesting though that you lack empathy because you've spoken about being the most unempathetic of your friends and you were teased about it at school. And I'm curious as to where you think that comes from. I get asked about it sometimes because of course I talk about it when talking about character and and traits of individuals. And I do think that my brother's passing when I was 10 has something to do with that because I've, I've never wanted to speak about that in a way where I'm wanting sympathy. I, I hate being given sympathy as well. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't want people feeling that I need any kind of help or, or whatever. You know, I, I feel like I'm pretty self-sufficient. I like doing things on my own. But when you're faced with that as a, as a child and you don't fully understand death, it's quite a big bitter pill to swallow that your hero, like Mike was my full-on hero. I believed he could do anything. And he was the strong force in my life. So for him to be taken was quite eye-opening for me. And I I, I didn't understand it for a long time. I just assumed that Michael would come back one day or that people were wrong or that, you know, it wasn't true in a kind of juvenile sense. And then obviously time passes and you realize that it is true. It's, um, it was hard for me to believe or imagine. And it felt like quite a big thing to happen to a child. And therefore my perspective on other people's problems shifted, you know, and if somebody had some kind of issue, like they're being bullied at school or, you know, I don't like my teacher or whatever, I was kind of like, well, my brother died. So I don't really care what you think. And, you know, it's not necessarily the best way to look at it, but I do feel that that probably plays a bearing on on your perspective as a child. It's interesting that you then became intolerant yourself because you could have gone one of two ways, essentially. You could have become like overly emotional and empathetic or just be like, no, point blank, don't have tolerance for other people's shit. And that's yeah. it. I went to see a, a therapist before 
we shot Finding Michael about because, you know, I, firstly, I was advised to by Disney and Shine because, you know, there was this looming reality that there was a chance that I may come face to face with Michael's frozen body and how would I handle that and what will that do to me? And of course, not being in the position to be able to ask anybody else who's been in that position, because I'm not sure anybody has been in that position, was an interesting time for me to go and see them. And, and it was him who said that I'd been suppressing emotion my whole life, and that could be a driving factor for alcoholism and my my kind of general behavior throughout my 20s. And again, that's nothing, that's something that I've never, I've never thrown Mike in that in that mix, because I think it's a dirty mix and I've not enjoyed saying, you know, oh, well, you know, I drank to excess for all these years because my brother died. You know, that that's something that's never come out of my mouth. And it's something that when he said it, the therapist, I thought that's just irritating to me, for you who doesn't really know me, to blame my behavior on my brother. But then, of course, when you realize it's not personal and he's just literally trying to get to the bottom up, because there is a reason that people drink to excess. There is a reason that people behave certain ways. And if you're willing to kind of open yourself up to what those reasons might be, then, you know, you might come across some things that you don't want to hear. So I really liked him, actually, personally. Um, but I still don't blame Mike for that, although I can clearly see why the two might be related. And he offered to work with me to make me more empathetic, more emotional, more understanding. And uh, I don't know if that's something that I want after all these years, you know? Well, ironically, it's a Pandora's box, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you kind of at points you want to slam it shut. To me, as someone who's had a lot of therapy for my entire life, it would be an obvious thing to say, well, you weren't allowed to show weakness as a child and then you had this tragedy when you were 10. And actually having endured both of those things, you then develop a mask and a coping strategy. So of course you learn to bury everything. And you, it somehow simmers to the surface at some point and, or it comes out in behaviors like excessive drinking, excessive exercise, whatever it is. And it just depends on what your coping strategy is. And one can dismiss it and carry on and one can put things down and go to extremes. But ultimately at some point in life, I think it has to be processed because it will always come out somewhere. I realized that actually the times that I would talk to people about Michael and how I felt about his death would be when I was drunk. I would never do it sober to my friends or my family or anyone, but I would talk for two hours about it to a stranger, like when I was hammered. And that is crazy because it's none of their business. And like, it's not something that I was, it kind of came out. It wasn't a case of of growing up feeling like Michael had made a mistake and had died on the mountain. You know, there was more to it than that. And actually, we don't go into it in the film. But, you know, it was thought that there were all kinds of problems that could have been avoided on that expedition. And so I kind of essentially grew up feeling that he was lost through fault of others, you know, which obviously made the thing harder to swallow than had he just had an accident, you know, somebody gets hit by a bus or somebody gets killed by somebody. It's two different ways of dealing with it, I would have thought, you know. Yeah, it was just a strange thing to grow up with. And also we never really, you know, on his birthday and on the day that he died, we would, you know, do certain things as a family, but not really. We would send cards to each other and send flowers on his birthday and maybe an email, like talking about how much we love him and miss him. But like, we never processed it as a family. I was very young as well. So actually I can't speak to how 
you know, mum, dad and James and people handled it because I was a kid. Mm. I literally just got on with my life. Like, and at times it would feel odd that he wasn't there. But actually I felt sheltered enough from it because of my age that it was quite manageable really for me. Manageable then, but you wonder what it's done long term, whether there's something bedded, it's a seed that's been planted in there and it is, there's something in you that's still unresolved. Yeah, I think death is a strange one though, isn't it? Because people handle it differently and everyone has their own way of dealing with it. And I think you can turn the death of a loved one into strength or a reason to do certain things or a reason to be a certain way or a reason to help others. Mm. Or you can kind of dwell in it, and I'm not saying either is right or wrong, or you can kind of dwell in it and feel misery and pain and be negatively affected by it for the rest of your life. And Mm. you see it, you know, in people who can't let go. Backtracking massively, and it seems so trivial to talk about now because you've gone on to do such like incredible deep things. But Made in Chelsea, yeah. what crossed your mind when you signed up for Made in Chelsea, and why did you do it? I think it's important to remember how young we were. Yeah. So, so I was nineteen. I'd left the University of Southern California after a year because I wanted to. I was studying cinema, television. I'd done a couple of plays. I wanted to be an actor. I didn't really feel like I was learning much. I was partying a lot and it was kind of like, it was one of those four year courses and it was just like, I'm not staying here for four years. Like, like it, nobody took me out by the way. I just like, I woke up one morning and I was just like, there's no way I'm doing this for four years. I'm just like, the, the, this is just a total waste of time and money. Not my money, of course, back then. Uh, but, um, but it still felt like a waste. Came back and, and got a serious job in the city, and I was in the city for, for a while, uh, ended up at ICAP as a forward foreign exchange broker, purely because I wanted to be more like my brother uh, and, and get like a serious job, and, and then kind of Made in Chelsea came along. But when I was in LA, I, I'd made kind of loose friendships, I suppose, with like Spencer Pratt and Brody Jenner and people who were on The Hills, which was kind of alarmingly popular. And as a teenager then, I was 18 when I kind of met them seeing their lifestyle was crazy. Like they were incredibly famous in in LA, like, and were being followed by paparazzi on bikes. And like, they they were being paid $100,000 to go to a nightclub. And I was just like, what is going on? And I'm like, you know, this didn't exist in the UK. And I flew back and had a meeting with uh, a friend of mine. His name's Ollie Horner. And he introduced me to a production company and we spoke about making a show called um, The Big Smoke, we wanted to call it. And that never got made. The pilot was obviously crap. And uh, and then I got my serious job at ICAP. And then about a year into that, I got a call saying, hey, like we heard that you you were wanting to do something along the lines of a kind of British Hills. We have a format that's commissioned. It's called Chelsea Girls. Do you want to come and meet us? And uh, I went and met them with a list of kind of uh, like ludicrous demands, I suppose. And they just said, you get none of that. You get to just be involved if you want to be. Otherwise, otherwise, we'll just do it with somebody else. And I was like, okay, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. We were paid £50 a filming day back then. And I just didn't really feel like I had too much to lose. The guys at ICAP were really cool. And they were just like, go and do your thing. And if it doesn't work out, come back. And I was like, okay, cool. So that's there. You know, not in my defense. I think I look back at some stuff that happened on that show and I feel 
like I wish I could just erase it um, and, and like you know I, I wish I hadn't behaved in the way that I did but I think it's also you know quite important to my life arc I suppose from like where I came to where I want to be and yeah. where I am now and I think it's quite important to have experienced being a different way so that you know what not to be essentially oh, 100%. I think you know if you've always been perfect and you get to later in your life you know you may you may feel like you haven't experienced the kind of life that you want to and it could all go pear shaped later whereas I know exactly who I want to be I know exactly where I'm heading hopefully because it's very important to have a plan and yeah look I can only apologize to people on that show for kind of the way I was I just I just didn't really care to be honest and it's a shame because you look back at it and it's kind of a bit like hmm what was so at that time? What the drinking and your drinking and your partying? Where were you at in your head, just psychologically, or was it just not something that you really thought about? Didn't think about it too much. I've always wanted to be the best at stuff, and that included drinking. I could drink an unusual amount, and I had a serious appetite for kind of socializing and being out. Like having a night off and being at home was just something that never happened ever. And like we were surrounded by people who were kind of similar in nature. So, you know, there would never be a time where everyone took the night off. So there was always something to to go to or something to do. So yeah, it was a bit full on, but also at the age that we were, like, you know, I suppose when it was at its worst, we we're in our early twenties and it's kind of, I could drink a bottle of vodka on a night out. And like, if I was to have a bottle of vodka now, it would, it would, it would just like, I'd be in hospital, I would have thought. You know, so it's kind of like, I'm quite glad <laughs> that that's the case now because I almost wish that I had had horrific hangovers because mm. presumably you would have done it less to yourself. Mm. I didn't feel impeded by it. Although you now know, like as a sober person, you think you're getting away with it, but you're not. You think that Nobody can see you've had, you know, six whiskeys or whatever, but you can, right? It's, mm. it's kind of like you feel like invincible and you feel really funny and you feel really cool, but actually you're just some pisshead in a bar. And that is a shame that I've realized that so much later in my life. But again, it's all part of the journey, I suppose. The first time I went to see a professional, I went to see a guy called Chip Summers and he was awesome and I loved him. Uh, and it's part of the reason that I took him seriously uh, I had an agent at the time called John Knoll, who was just hilarious, like the best. He was so funny and just awesome. And he was like, you get fucked up far too often. Uh, uh, you know, and he was like, I can't fucking sell you to anyone. And I was just like, all right, well, thanks. Uh, and he said, you need to go and chat to my friend Chip Summers on Harley Street. He'll straighten you out. And he's, he's straightened out Davina McCall and Russell Brands. And, you know, you'll be in good company, basically. And I was just like, okay. I uh, didn't really think I needed it. And I turned up and I'll never forget it actually. And I've seen him recently and I spoke about this moment because it was, it was in a sense, life-changing. It didn't change my life then, mm. but I remember it so clearly. And I sat down with him and he looked at me and like a lot of people, I've put this, you know, I've mentioned this before and, and, and people say, well, he's a shocking therapist and he's not because it worked. Right. And he, he basically looked at me and he was just like, do you have any idea how much you stink of alcohol? And I was like, well, I haven't drank today, so that's fucking rubbish. And he was just like, he was like, when was the last time you had a drink? And I was like, last night. And he was like, well, it must have been a proper sesh, was it? And I was just like, 
not really, like just lying basically. And I'd purposely not had a drink. This is at like three in the afternoon. Mm. I'd purposely not drank that day so that I could turn up with bells and whistles on so that this guy went back to John saying like, he's perfect. He doesn't need any help. And uh, <laughs> and he yeah, and he literally was like, you stink of alcohol. And I was like, do I? And he was like, he was like, you reek so much of whiskey that when the next client comes in here, I'm going to have to open up the windows and explain to them that I haven't been drinking. And I was just like, I remember like hearing it and thinking, I know he's probably just saying that. And then I was like, what if he's not just saying that? And then he was like, if you're ever wondering why you're not where you want to be, that's why people see you as a drunk mess that reeks of whiskey. And they probably are very nice to your face. And then you walk out the door and they all turn to each other and laugh and say like, what a fucking mess. And I was like, okay then. Uh, and, and we had, you know, a chat. And then he said, setting yourself the goal of not drinking forever is not going to be possible for you because you wouldn't be able to do that because of the state that you're in. Um, so he was like, why don't we meet again next Wednesday at three in a week's time? And I don't want you to touch any alcohol for a week. Like, do you think you can do seven days without drinking? I said, yeah, of course I can. Mate. I can do, I can do anything. All right. And he was like, okay, go for it. So left, nearly went straight to a bar, literally. Cause I was quite like, I was a little bit shaken by it. And then I thought to myself, actually, nothing will give me more pleasure than proving this prick wrong. And I didn't drink for a week and I came back and I felt like phenomenal. And he said, like, how do you feel? And we were having a chat and I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and I smelled great. And like, it was all kind of, and it was like the whole thing was just like so much fun. And he was like, isn't this a better meeting? Like, don't you wish that you could be like this more? He was like, do another week. And we did six months of that. Honestly, I was just like, so delighted with the whole thing, like sanctimonious, like as hell, probably really annoying to be around, but like, I just loved this new lease on life and I just, I adored it. And then I got really comfortable and just thought, you know, it's fine. I've done that now. That's easy. Maybe I'll have a different relationship with alcohol. And, you know, there was a bit of that, you know, th through the years to come, but like, it was the most phenomenal feeling and you know, you never forget that. So after that six months, what happened? Just went back to drinking and, and, you know, for a while it wasn't that bad and then it got bad and, you know, then I'd do the odd, month off here and there and you know then years passed and I don't know I met Vogue um who in my opinion is just the most phenomenal woman like she's great very patient with me in the early days I think um because we we would both go out quite a lot I mean uh, and I don't know like life progressed and Vogue fell pregnant with Theodore and there was a time when I realized that if I don't change my relationship with alcohol, I'm going to lose her. And that would be a crying shame. I woke up one morning and just realized I'm going to stop. And there was the odd false start, I guess, here and there, but never like before, you know, just to, to the point where you realize, actually, I don't feel like I'm missing out on, on anything. And I think that's part of the reason that people struggle with it. They feel like their social life will be negatively impacted and that they will miss out on stuff, which just isn't the case. Mm. You know, when all your friends go out to get hammered, you're not missing anything ever. I think though the key is that 
as you say, it's Chip giving you that six-month period where you had the evidence that you could live life without it. And I think for many people who struggle with addiction, it's having those sober months or the ability to eat in moderation or the ability to do whatever in moderation to see that life doesn't crumble around you and that you actually feel great and you're, these doors open that didn't previously open and you end up by feeling really energised and refreshed and you get this new just zest about life. It's certainly worth trying. If you think you have a bad relationship with alcohol, then you do, right? Like this is a very black and white thing. Like honestly, if you ever wake up feeling like, ooh, I think I might drink too much, then then you do. And it's something that's very personal. You know, people have to do it for themselves. And by the way, I'm not saying that sobriety is is the answer. I'm not anti-alcohol. Uh, and actually, like, will I ever drink again in my life? I, I really don't know. Like, I'm not, I, I'm very comfortable with where I am now. I suspect after all these years, I'll never drink in the same way that I used to drink. But I wouldn't rule out a glass of champagne at something here or there. Like, I'm not, I'm not anti-alcohol and neither is Clinko. Like, you know, we understand that a good relationship with alcohol is what everyone should strive for. And most people have that, you know, mm. this is more for problem drinkers mm. who, you know, want to have a way of moderating without changing their behavior. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the and partnership's belief in the power of and, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the and partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com and a massive thank you to the AM partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together I am curious as you speak though as to whether you were just so afraid of being alone where the alcohol provided this crutch and it enabled you to not face that loneliness and then Vogue came along and suddenly you realize actually hey I don't need to be alone and I've got so much to lose and suddenly when that the right person appeared and you were having a child you had the stakes were so high you had too much to lose yeah and actually the alcohol then fades into insignificance because coupled with the evidence you had of how life could be without it yeah it was just like all these stars almost aligning at once it's exactly that and it's also like I had a lack of purpose and a lack of direction and a lack of responsibility. So like before Vogue, I was single, no serious job, mm. right? So I was uh, in TV. Not that being in TV is not a serious job. You know, some people obviously have serious jobs in TV. I was a reality star floating mm. around doing MasterChef, then The Jump. And then like, God, I hope I get more TV work because if I don't, I'm unemployed and I'm that guy that used to be on TV. So I, I had no I had no clear plan or direction and, and no responsibility. So if I wanted to wake up at 12, I could. And if I wanted to go to bed at six, I could. You know, and it was kind of like that's unhelpful with Clinko and my podcasts and my family. Like that's not possible. 
Yeah. Right? Like, I'm in bed at eight. Not like, well, firstly, I love being in bed at eight. But like, secondly, if I'm not in bed at eight and we go to bed at one, I'm going to feel like a bit fucked for the following day. And it's usually full of stuff that needs my attention. So it's kind of, I'm fortunate to have worked to be in a position where I have that as well because I love being busy, you know. Mm -hmm. But for me, that's a really important thing to do with the drinking. So like for me, I can guarantee you that if I suddenly had nothing to do, my sobriety would be in big danger. Mm. Honestly, if I suddenly had, right, I have no recordings and no meetings and no clean co and no nothing till Sunday, I'd be like, hmm, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, something's got to be more important than the addiction or the destructive behavior. So what I want to talk to you about as well is your extreme sport. Yeah. And your exercise, is that something that is, has become a bit of a, a crutch that may be seen by some as being self-destructive and maybe a bit dangerous to, to verging on insane, but it's maybe not as bad as using the alcohol? Yeah, I mean, well, look, like ultramarathons and getting pissed have to be put in a different category, surely. Well, like, I, what uh... in, in do you think that I mean, similar? I know the occasional one, I think absolutely incredible, what a feat, unbelievable achievement, but it's an addiction and it's not necessarily healthy. I don't even enjoy them. Well, exactly. That's case, <laughs> case in point. You know what? I don't actually know what they are. I don't, and, and it's interesting. There's something in me that I love about finishing something that I know to be very difficult. And whether that be a milestone in business or whether it be one of these ultra marathons. Like I kind of got the bug in the marathon of Saab. Like the, bu- the, the marathon of Saab is like a, is a crazy thing. Like it's, and when my brother did it and this stems probably from my brother, like I'm very competitive with my brother and almost immediately when I became sober, I had this shit. I can be like, I could be like him. And then I started to look at some of the stuff that I thought he was mental for doing like the marathon of Saab. I remember him going off to this thing when I was like young and I was literally just like, what, why does he want to run six and a half marathons in five days in the Sahara desert? Like, okay, yeah, it's really cool. and It's really impressive. But like, what a weirdo, right? And I just, I couldn't get it. And I thought it was, well, insane. And he came 170th or something out of 1200 people and like smashed it. And then I was sober for like, a brief period, really brief, couple of weeks. And I just thought to myself, well, I'm going to do that marathon of Saab thing because I kind of get it now. And like, I feel like I have all this energy and all this time. And like, I feel like, like when I go to the gym now, I get tired quickly because I'm you know not hammered from the night before. And it's kind of like, God, I could really probably build on this. And um, I signed up to the marathon of Saab and, and I went and it was, my brother was literally like, you need to prepare for this. And I've never prepared for, for anything really. I, like even nowadays, I'm super just like off the whim type character. And so I, I did some running obviously, like, but I wasn't at all ready for this thing and um, went out there and just was able to get into this zone where like, I kind of liked it. Like, and then there were, there was like long arduous days that were really horrific. But when you're met with the desire to quit, you're in a position that you literally can't believe, right? So like on the fourth day, it took me 14 hours and 40 minutes to do that day. So you finish in the middle of the night, basically. And the amount of times during that day where you're just, you you are done. You have no energy left. You are finished. Mm-hmm. And you have to literally just go, 
well, do I press this button that's on my shoulder and a helicopter picks me up and I look like, you know, some tosser who's kind of, or like, do I just keep putting one foot in front of the other? Obviously, eventually you get to the end of that day and you kind of feel like you can do anything. And I came 69th in, out of the whole thing. And I called my brother and I said, uh, you know, I came 69th. And he said, no, 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 no. You probably came 69th, like in your age category. You know? And I was just, I was like, I was like, I was like, no, no, I came 69th overall. And he, he, he was, he was very happy for me, but, but not really. Yeah, yeah. If you know I what I mean. And, but it was, it, it was kind of amazing. And I remember the feeling of crossing the finish line at the end. You feel nothing because you're just, you're done. But then like you go, you finally have a nice night in a hotel and you have a, piping hot shower and you shave and like you put on some nice fresh clothes and all of a sudden you start to go like, Oh my God, what I just did was like, like I'm all the stuff that you were talking about. They're like feeling invincible. Like mm. I can do anything mm. that is more addictive to me than, than alcohol ever was that feeling of like, I can do anything. And then you try and translate that into, well, what can I do with Clinko if I just ran that thing? Like, can I build this into a billion dollar business? Like, you know, mm. how far can my life take me? And I love those. I love those thought that thought process. I don't really say that very often because it sounds a bit lame. But when you begin to feel that you can achieve anything, that's awesome. Even if you can't, could you say now? I mean, can you survive without exercise? Because I was thinking throughout that documentary and watching it, I was like, how did Svenny cope spending that amount of time locked up in base camp? Like, what was he? <sighs> base camp's a ghastly place. I think. Mm. Like it's 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 beautiful in a sense, but. When you've seen it, you've seen it. You know, we spent four and a half weeks at base camp, which is a very long time to be at base camp. And I think exercise is absolutely essential. Like I've obviously been, I've been very uncomfortable in my own skin. I've been very heavy for my liking. And I much prefer being the kind of physique that I carry now. And I, I lift weights, you know, three times a week and I, I run and I train and I do that on purpose, but it's kind of, it's not so much so I can look a certain way. It's how you feel, you no. know, and I'm, I'm not a scientist or a doctor for the record, but you know, the way I feel when I've trained is incredible. I feel like more able to tackle my day. I feel despite being very busy, I still have some times when I feel it's me being very honest. Now I just sometimes like if I have three hours off in an afternoon, and I know that Vogue feels this way as well. You feel like you have to be doing something. You mm. have to fill your day. Like we, we both struggle to just like sit there yeah. and do nothing. I call my agent from time to time and I'm just like, where are we with this? Where are we with that? Like we should be doing this. Like what's happening? And she's just like, you called me and said the same thing yesterday. Like fucking relax. How are you feeling now that finding Michael's come out and go, I mean, that must've been a real emotional roller coaster. Just watching you go through that on screen brought me to tears and I'm not brought to tears easily and that was tough. Well, thanks. I actually cried watching the film, which I wasn't expecting because I, I don't cry at all, like ever. Like I've not, I, I can't remember the last time I cried going back to this, like I wasn't allowed to cry really. And I cried when I watched it for the first time. Uh, and it, it, I could tell it had like nothing to do with the fact that it was my brother or my story. I just found the way in which it was made to be like really beautiful. And obviously like, you know, sometimes you'll be watching a film and like the music gets you and it's kind of like, but it was just, I thought I cried at the bit where Dave Rodney's the Canadian guy says goodbye to Mike for the last time. And I was just like, Oh my God. Yeah. It's a funny one because I, I loved making the film, but like people, I think some people might find it odd for me to say that, but like, 
I've not taken the time to process Mike and be in Mike and thinking about Mike for six weeks ever, you know, in my adult life. So feeling so close to him and following his footsteps and being a part of his like final days was really interesting and really beautiful to me. For me, there were two reasons for wanting to make the film in the first place. And that's giving my brave brother the legacy that I feel he deserves because he's never included in conversations mm. around Everest and all these interesting, incredible people that have lost their lives on Everest. Uh, he's, he's literally never mentioned, which I always found to be a shame. And over 20 years ago, we sat up with the Michael Matthews Foundation to help young girls in Tanzania, in rural parts of, of Tanzania. We've helped about 7,000 kids. And it's always been great, but it's difficult to raise money mm. for a project like that when people don't know who Michael was. Yeah, You know, so the Michael Matthews Foundation, you go out to, hey, I'm raising money for the Michael Matthews Foundation. I'm doing the Marathon de Sable. And people mm. go, who's Michael Matthews? And like all of a sudden there's that, there are two or three layers to it that you have to expect people to be educated and learn about what the cause is as well as donating. It's quite a difficult thing to do particularly pre-social media. So yeah, those two reasons. I wanted people to know who Mike was essentially and for him to be remembered and for him to hold hopefully a place in some people's hearts, you know. And I think it was an interesting film about grief, mm. you know, because I think most people have experienced loss. Also um, seeing you go through it in a completely live, very real, surreal time way. You know, when you decided that essentially you might not find him yeah. and going through that whole process of, you know, for the first half, you could feel the tension and the anxiety and then you slightly let it go and you'd sort of resigned yourself to the fact, okay, we're going to do a great deed anyway. Yeah. And even if it doesn't come to the resolution that I'd hoped and I'd anticipated in, in some way, it's come a full circle. And, yeah. and then to get Nims to do it, I mean, that was I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. Nims is a special character. He's an all or nothing guy. Nothing gets in his way, that's for sure. For those listeners who are unfamiliar with Nims, he is the world record holder for having climbed the 14 highest peaks in the world the fastest. He did it in seven months. The previous record was seven years. Amazing mountaineer. I felt he was very respectful of me yeah. uh, and we're close now as well. But he... Uh, but yeah, it's what in watching him operate up there. It's like he's like some kind of like god. Up he is there. a god. He's, he's like yeah. people on that mountain just like hail him, and it's kind of crazy. It was fascinating observing the dynamic between the two of you. That was another component of the of the film that I just loved. I did, I just think it was so well. I can't tell you how well done I thought it was. It, it was well, just really our, our relationship is actually it's far better than the film makes it out to be. Yeah. We're we're actually like we we have a lot of fun with one another. We're we're pretty close and. Um, Nobody pulls his leg apart from me. So I'll pull his leg like publicly and he'll hate it, but he quite likes it, I think, because it's like it's foreign to him. He's also pretty small. So like you can kind of pick him up and have a bit of fun with him. And, you know, he's uh, so it's kind of, <laughs> it's, yeah. And then clean co. So amazing. Here's Benny is sitting in front of me in a clean co. I mean, very, very lovely jacket, looking very chic. Thank you very much. No, the clean K thing was, you know, I was, I was sober for about three, four months uh, and I went round to my brother's actually and his, uh, he was having a dinner party and I, would, I had found by that stage that my sobriety was having a kind of small negative effect on my social life. Like I wasn't kind of able to be as easily included in stuff. 
not that my friend my friends were all kind of super cool with me giving up the drink because I think you know they knew that that was what was right for me. But you know, you'd be at a bar or a pub or something, and it's kind of like, oh hey, like we'll have you know five gin and tonics and a diet coke or something, and it's kind of like I, I there's only so many diet cokes you can drink, I think, when, when you're out and about, and obviously non-alcoholic beer, and essentially I was offered a non-alcoholic gin and tonic at this party, and I just assumed that they meant a tonic water, and I was just like. Oh no, thanks. Like I'm fine for a tonic water. Like, have you got any non-alcoholic beer? And they were like, No, no, no. It's non-alcoholic gin and tonic. And I was like, What is non-alcoholic gin? And they were like, It's um this brand called Seedlip. And I was like, and I had a look at it, and it didn't say gin anywhere on the bottle, and it wasn't made with juniper or anything like it. It was kind of the the one that I had was made with cloves and bark and like grass and peas and stuff that I found to be fascinating, but I, I didn't really. They weren't botanicals that you would expect to find in gin. And of course, we mixed it with tonic and I drank it and I thought it was kind of really fascinating. And I thought, well, surely there must be like hundreds of these because it's it's such a cool idea to have non-alcoholic spirits. And there weren't, there were none. And like, I thought like, what an amazing opportunity to make an actual gin that's juniper driven and looks like gin and smells like gin and tastes like gin. And that's where it all started. And I, I kind of became... You're going to say this is the addict. Uh, I became just crazy about it. Like, like I for 20 hours of a 24 hour day, I would think about nothing but this, you know. And I was, I was in cars and trains and, and planes and heading like to Cork in Ireland and all these distilleries to say that like, I want to make a non-alcoholic gin. And people thought I was probably being a bit obsessive, uh, and and certainly these distillers had had not heard of it, right? So we were trying to create this product and and uh, and we eventually were able to create a product at 1.2% alcohol. I wasn't able to get to zero, zero. That did a good enough job of tasting like gin and we got a big Sainsbury's contract and we were off to the races. Yeah, I think it's really brilliant and God good for you. Thanks. Han, I could talk to you for hours, but I'm conscious of your time and you've been so generous coming here today. And I just want to thank you for all the amazing work you're doing. And just, it's so amazing to see, have observed from a distance your journey. I think you're phenomenal in what you're doing with Vogue and being such a, a dad to three amazing children. And yeah. If you told me five years ago when I was abusing alcohol regularly that I would have a wife like Vogue and three amazing kids, there's not a chance I would have believed that. So isn't it funny how small changes to your life can completely change, you know, where you're heading? Because I don't think if I'd kept my previous relationship with alcohol that that would be the case. No. And I'm so glad that it is. Well, I am too. And you're an amazing person for it. So long may it last. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.